Hello, and welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. My name is Julie Faithan Balzer, and I'm a working artist and mother to a curious toddler. Are you making faces? My business, Balzer Designs, is all about helping you to live an artful life through thoughtful art education. On this podcast, together with my super special co-host and very immature mother, Eileen Shoe Balzer, we ask questions of each other and our guests while discussing learning, the creative, the creative career path, finding balance, looking at art, setting goals, and why being creative matters. Our goal for this podcast is to stimulate your imagination. So hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. You're sitting on a very tall chair, and I... You don't like it, do you? I don't. I'm you so don't used like to being it that taller I'm than this you. tall. Yeah, I got... So I, I have a um, desk that's not a normal height desk, and so I've been, like, typing like this, so I finally got a higher chair, and Mom is sitting in that chair today, and I like her looming over me. It feels dangerous. Um, today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about asking questions, which is actually a surprisingly helpful way to make better art, also to be a better person, also to get the results that you want. Because the thing is, if you can ask the question in a meaningful way, I think you can find the answer. So, well, and that's the whole idea behind therapy. Google. Oh, interesting Name. that we went to two very different places yes, on this. <laughs> Um, before we launch into the conversation, I just want to mention really quickly that I have a bunch of classes right now. The Artful Holiday is going, and that class is packed with techniques and ideas and all sorts of stuff that I'm using. All of my online classes have lifetime access, so you can do the lessons whenever you want and in your pajamas. So I hope you'll check that out at balzerdesigns.com. Also, uh, there is always monthly membership, which is a great way to support me personally, that's helpful. I, I love it. It makes my business go. It's one of the things I put also for you to get the thing out of the bill. There's all sorts of vlogs and tutorials and downloads and all sorts of things. You can pick the level that works for you, and I really appreciate it. And then last but not least, Design Boot Camp Level 2 starts up again soon, and then Level 1, the new one in 2023. So be sure to check all of that out at juliebalzer.com. Okay, so let's talk about questions and you t- okay. so you say why you said google and i'll say why i said therapy Go because ahead. i'm not in therapy right now i'm not in therapy either wait, well maybe you need to be and i as a standard now turn to google for everything i grew up with um the encyclopedia the yes we had the <laughs> The encyclopedia is tucked into saddlebags on the dinosaurs. Yes, on the dinosaurs. That's good. So That's good. I'm glad. Every time we didn't know something, we immediately would go to, to the encyclopedia to look it up. And now we're in the habit of whenever we don't know anything, we're eating dinner or whatever, mm-hmm. we, somebody will immediately whip out their phone and we'll look it up. Well, I was going to say, I'm not quite as old as you, but I am still old. So I that didn't write odd. I didn't write a dinosaur. It would be very odd. I didn't write a dinosaur, but I certainly have looked everything up in an encyclopedia. When I was little, I remember that um, if we were really stuck and we couldn't find it, you would tell, tell us that we could call the library and we could talk to the librarian and she would know some other book in the encyclopedia where she could look it up and she could help us out and with they that. they always helped us. They did. They did. But it is true because actually, so I, for people who don't know, and you probably don't, for many, many years, for more than 20 years, my mom was on the school committee in the town that we live in. And um, so she has a really deep knowledge of education and curriculum. And one of the things that you used to talk to me about is that one of the changing educational issues is that it actually has become important for students to understand how to ask questions 
right? Well, because right. that actually is important now when you do like a Google search in a way that it wasn't necessarily a skill that you needed to have 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever, whatever. Years well, ago, whenever the curriculum. Well, the curriculum was designed school. and sometimes it feels like the curriculum was designed that long ago, but we ask questions in a different kind of way now. Well, you have to ask the right questions to generate the actual answer that you want to get. But I will say this just as an aside, I hate it that now you go to the library and you want one particular book and you don't go through the stacks and see what other books are around. You don't have that serendipitous experience of stumbling across things you didn't know were there because you only ask questions about what you're the one thing that you know you're looking for. I, I don't like that. Well, I will say it is the difference between like, sometimes I'll go online to our library and I'll request a book and mm -hmm. then it will just be at the circulation desk for me, which is great. Um, but the other day, I think, um, Steve and I have been taking yoga classes at the library. And so the other day we were there early. So I just went up into the, um, art section and started looking through the art books. And I came home with an armload of books that I wouldn't have even known to request. So like on the one hand, I'm so pleased that I can request books from other libraries because often the books I'm looking for aren't at our local library. We have to request them from somewhere else within the system. But on the other hand, I do also love the ability. So it's kind of like, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want both of those things. Yeah, I, I, I used to love wandering through the moldering, dark, scary stacks. <laughs> <laughs> that, that doesn't sound that entrancing, but I get what you mean because it used to be like when I was in college, if you were in research for a paper, if you could find one book that was kind of what you were looking for, then you could probably go into the stacks and in that section, right find like 20 more that were there for you. And I think the way that the internet is becoming more and more tailored for us, we don't stumble across things um, that might help us have a different perspective or have a different point of view. We stumble across things that reinforce everything we already know. Like I see the same exact Google results sort of every well, single time. Well, because the algorithm is based on what you've already asked or looked for. Right. So the things you haven't looked for are less likely to come up. Yeah. So the reason I said therapy is because I remember hearing yes, somebody, well, I, uh, I desperately therapy. need therapy, help me. Um, but I have a room full of therapy here. Look at this therapy. Uh, so what I was going to say is, so I, uh, when I was wondering like why talk therapy works, like why does that work that you can like talk to a stranger and suddenly like fix your problems? And the answer actually is in the trying to explain the situation to somebody who doesn't know it in the um, trying to figure out what it is you're trying to ask the therapist for or what you need, all driven, of course, by the urgency of having paid this person a lot of money for their time. So you need to like get it out. You actually kind of solve your problem yourself. I mean, that person is there and they are a guide and I do appreciate it. And I have been to therapy and it has been very helpful. See this incredible piece of paper that was very therapeutic for me. But, uh, you know, I think that there, there really is something in that idea of once you can sort of talk through the problem, you actually can find the solution. And this is the whole question thing. So, some of it is very simple. Like I often find when people write to me with questions that are about um, like help that they need with technical issues, a lot of times the first thing that I say back to them is they'll say like, I, they'll say, I can't access my class. And I will say, okay, but I don't know what that means. Like you can't access your class because a meteor fell on your house or you can't access your class because you don't know where to go or you can't access your class because you forgot your password or you can't access your class because you're getting a error message. So I usually write back and I say, you know, are you getting an error message? And can you send me a screenshot of whatever the problem is? And I would say 
six out of 10 times, the person writes back and says, never mind, I figured it out. Because usually when they have to go back and figure out what the problem is to tell me what the problem is, then they can fix it, right? So that's if you can ask the question, you can solve it. I would say I don't hear back from at least like two of the people, which to me says that they like solved it. And then there are a couple cases where it actually is a problem where I can walk somebody through whatever it is. And I have found the same thing to be true, you know, with a lot of art questions or when my son asks questions and I, my response as a teacher, sorry, go ahead. No, or when your mother turns to you because you're my IT department yes. and says, this doesn't work. How can I do this? Or this has happened on my phone. And I must say, although you really want to say to me, Google it. And <laughs> occasionally you have, you are very patient in walking me through it. Yeah. Because, but a lot of times that's because you like, I think the problems that are the hardest to solve are the ones where you don't know the questions to ask. Like I, this has been my experience of being a parent, for instance, oftentimes I will come out of an appointment with my son or out of an experience and you will ask me a question. Oh, well, what did they say about X? And I'll be like, well, they didn't say anything about that. And I didn't know that I was supposed to ask that. I didn't know that that was something that I had to be concerned about. And I think those are the problems, again, if you don't know the questions to ask that you just can't solve. Right. And so that's where uh, experts are important. That's where education is important. That's where research is important. And so to bring it again, like back to art, oftentimes when people write me about product questions, like what would happen if I added water to my acrylic paint? Okay, well... You don't have to Google it. You don't have to watch a video. Just do it. Like it's not gonna, it's not gonna blow up. You're not gonna have a chemical explosion here, right? And you can sort of observe what's happening. And I, I think that the best learning comes from those kinds of questions. What if? What if? What if? What if? Because instead of following the conventional rules, like technically you're not supposed to add water to acrylic paint because really it um it just it sort of destabilizes the uh, so acrylic paint is made out of a binder, water, and pigment. And if you add too much water to it, you basically make the binder go away, right? You dilute it. And so what ends up happening then is your acrylic paint like flakes off and it doesn't like stick to things and blah blah blah. So the rule of thumb is generally like don't add water. If you want to thin your paint, use an acrylic medium, which essentially is binder and water without the pigment. But I add water to my acrylic. Everybody does. And like over time, what you figure out is how much can I add before it falls apart? Am I adding water to it and it's going in a book? So flaking is not really as much an issue as if it's going on a canvas or if it's going on something like fabric where it's going to get scrunched and moved and the ability and the fact of flaking might be big. I mean, I'm a huge fan of experiential learning, I guess is part of what I'm trying to say. What do you think? Well, remember the other day I was telling you that I'm a visual learner. Yeah. Like if I write something down, mm -hmm. then I'll remember it much better yeah. than if I'll hear it. And I think in some ways you are a, a person who learns by doing. I am a hundred percent a kinesthetic learner. Is that what they call it? In I fancy don't know. Terms? But, um, but I, I definitely learn by like, 
physically making, like I'll make the model of the cell in biology class and I understand it. I read the book about it. I look at the picture, can't get it. I also think I'm an auditory learner because if I hear something like I found with podcasts, with audiobooks, like I can recall things from those really quickly in a way that I can't necessarily with things that I've read. So I think, okay, so when I was in college, and there weren't dinosaurs, but it was a long time ago. Uh, I took an education class that I loved. And one of the central books in that class was this book by Howard Gardner that was about the seven learning styles. And some people in education hate it, and some people love it. But it really appealed to me uh, because it, the central idea here is that for years and years and years, we've been teaching kids one way of learning. You read the book, maybe you write a paper, and that's how you learn it. But if you're not a person who learns from those ways, you know, of receiving information, then basically you're labeled as stupid or dumb or whatever else, but you're not. It's just not the way that you learn. And so can you find a way as a teacher to teach a lesson about birds where one day, yes, you read the book about birds and you write the paper about birds, but maybe you could make paper birds and could you have the kids flap around the room like birds to understand how wings work? And could you, you know, like, can you approach all these different styles of learning so that everybody gets an opportunity to be smart, essentially. And I think one of the things I like so much about this idea is, A, I like the idea that everybody's smart. I like the idea that there aren't, do you remember you told me about, um, there was somebody who was traumatized when they were a kid because a teacher put up on the board like dumb bunnies and had a list of children under that, of people who were literally on the blackboard as dumb bunnies. abusive to me, frankly. Terrible terrible and I think like people go their whole lives when you label them as dumb feeling like that's the way that it is and I think that if they feel that way it's almost like they manifest it it's like they give up because they think well I'm dumb I can't get it which is terrible right so I'm I'm all for empowering people and feeling making everybody feel like they're smart right because we all are we just have different learning styles and the world is set up obviously for traditional learning. Now, I actually, so this was part of uh, the education class that I really liked, which is they said, um, so traditional learning was set up because we didn't have books, right? There's no books. So what that means is you go to school, maybe there's one book that the teacher has, they read it out loud, you memorize it, you parrot it back to prove that you have learned the knowledge. You don't have lots and lots of paper to write on, so you, you just have a chalkboard. So you have one opportunity, right, to write down things correctly, just demonstrate to the teacher you get it, but really it's your ability to parrot back what they're saying that's so important. So that was how education worked. It makes sense. And if you think about it, the most educated people are becoming things like preachers, and how are they teaching a population that can't necessarily read They're teaching them by reading to them. And then the people in the audience are speaking back to them what they've heard to reinforce that they understand the lesson. So then over and over and over again, this is how we're learning. This is what we think education is. This is what we think smart people are, or people who can memorize things. But maybe that's not true. But how this all sort of gets back to like art and questioning is again, the idea that I think that, um, People think in art that the equivalent in art is being smart is I can sit down and I can draw a horse. It's always a horse. Okay, I'm sit down and I can draw a gazelle. Whatever it is, completely realistically, it's beautiful. A kitten, a gorgeous kitten, okay? Pick your animal. It has to be an animal. (laughs) Um, Completely realistically, and that's like I'm an artist. But there are lots of ways to be an artist, and we agree with this, right? But 
whether you're that person who can draw realistically or the person who prefers to do whatever else it is that you want, I think you still have to be able to ask yourself some questions. Like you're not, just because you're not, you're choosing not to draw realistically doesn't mean that you're free from the intellectual rigors, I think, that are required of being an artist. And I do think that there's this reputation that artists get for being kind of like flirty, gibbet, la la la, in your garret, having sex with models, going to getting, being drunk and not really working. But every, every working artist I know who makes a living off of art is a business person first and an artist second. And they're constantly asking questions of themselves. How do I make this business go? What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What am, can I do to make my art more appealing? How can I make my art more like me? You know, I watched a YouTube video this morning while I was um, eating breakfast and it was like, for me, it was what I call an amen experience, Okay. which is, I mean, it's one of those things where like you're watching something and somebody is saying the things that you're thinking that you so agree with. And so the whole time you're just like, yes, amen. I agree a hundred percent. Yes. Go you. Maybe this podcast is like that for you. I don't know. Maybe just time spent with me. Mom is like that for you. Every moment. Okay. So it was total amen experience because what she was talking about is when she looks through art books, what she does is she's not trying to copy them. She's trying to think about why they appeal to her mm -hmm. because then she can take those ideas into her art. Oh, I really like the way that they're using, uh, you know, contrasting colors. Oh, I really like the um, small details that they're using in their backgrounds, whatever it is. Or even just maybe I'm going to play with this idea. It's yeah. interesting to me. Right? I love horses. <laughs> I got the horses in again. Uh, so whatever it is, oops, I knocked the table with my knee. Uh, I whatever put you in horseback riding or something. No, I have ridden on a horse and I don't like it. I don't like it. In case we're all wondering, that's how much of a control freak I am. I don't like it. Um, so anyway, the whole point is like, but she's asking questions the whole time. Why do I like this? Why does, does this feel to me? And I think that that's so central to knowing who you are as an artist. And it's so central again, to getting the results you want. What's wrong with this painting? Well, if you can't figure out right some of the questions to ask that are related to what's wrong with this painting then I don't think you can fix it or not even what's wrong with this painting but why why don't I like why it? am I not happy with this yeah 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 and I think because that leads to a whole like tree of questions why am I not happy this with this well how is it making me feel how well, did my mother ruin me how did my mother I make me feel bad about this painting these are the important questions. So let's talk a little bit about what I think makes a good question, what you think makes a good question. You have to go first. Question about what? Um, so like if you are struggling, let's say for you, a lot of what you do is maybe writing and you're thinking, how, how are you going to, what are the kind of questions you're going to ask yourself when you're writing? Well, the first thing I do when I, after I've written something and I'm looking at this, I, I read it aloud in my head. Mm -hmm. because you, I, I see it differently and I see the areas where I haven't explained it correctly or whether I've used the same word four times or uh, uh, whether it's disorganized. So reading it aloud is very helpful. And then I often find I can't 
on the computer, I can't really see it the same way as I do when it's uh, printed. So I often have to print it and actually correct it, change it, edit it with my hand the old-fashioned way. Um, with the help of a dinosaur. Exactly. I don't know. the dino Can you draw a lifelike dinosaur? Yes, I can. Oh, okay. So, uh, but one of the things I always do is I want to make sure that I have made the idea clear to people who don't know me and haven't had this discussion. I mean, I think that's the most important thing. When you Sometimes when I'm writing things, I know I'm going to be reading it out loud in a meeting or something. So it's even more important that when I hear it, that mm -hmm. it's expressed in a way that is clear when you speak it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think one of the things that I do when I'm writing something is I find leaving it alone mm -hmm. and then coming back the next day or something is mm -hmm. very helpful because I know in my brain what I meant to say, and maybe I'm inserting that in where it doesn't exist. So by coming back the next day, I'm coming at it fresh. Mm -hmm. And I think you do that with your art, too. You leave it for a while. I do. And I think it's a technique that works. Yeah, but yeah. What, are, what are the questions you're asking yourself about it? Have I, first, have I expressed the central idea that I, or the argument that I meant to mm -hmm. put in here. And then it's, have I uh, done it elegantly? Have I used uh, evocative vocabulary? Mm -hmm. uh, have I repeated myself? I mean, I think these are, these are basic questions yeah. that I ask about everything that I write. So I think that for me, a lot of times, I found particularly in getting feedback that you can you get the quality of feedback based on the quality of the question that you ask. So we talk about this a lot in group coaching, which is if I if I show you this and I say what do you think? I probably don't get the feedback that I want. But if I say to you, do you uh, think that the background has enough contrast with the vase? so that you can clearly see what it is. You can either say to me mm -hmm. feedback that is actually useful to me and sort of answer my question, which gets right back to the specificity thing. I think a lot of times we ask these very open-ended questions, even of ourselves. So the very open-ended question is like, how do why, I look? How do I look? Or why isn't this yeah. working? Why isn't this piece of art working? Okay, well, that's such a big question. So maybe a better thing to ask yourself is, you know, uh, where do I want the eye to go first? Because that's something you can solve right away. You can't solve why isn't this working right away. But if I think about like, where do I want the eye to go in this? I can kind of be like, I want the eye to go right here. So I drew a big X on it so that your eye would go right. I mean, whatever it is, but you know what I mean? You can find ways to do that. That's a specific task. And if you can break a sort of big open ended problem or idea into smaller questions. You know, I can't, uh, I can't access the online classroom because I don't know where to go. 
boom, I can help you. I can help you figure out what that is, or you can even help yourself with that problem. So the next time you're stuck in your art, I think something that's useful is to think about what are some of the questions you can ask yourself to help yourself get unstuck that aren't the sort of big open-ended you know, depressing questions that all artists ask themselves. Why do I suck? Why do I keep doing this? Why is this place such a mess? Why do you know, why even bother? Those are sort of the big horrible questions. I think you want to ask yourself. I also do have you read ones. things mm -hmm. to see if it's clear to you. Uh, what I don't ask you is whether you agree with me on the points right. that I'm making, because that's not why I would have you. Right read it it's whether do you i like this never ask anybody yeah. if they like this terrible question people will tell you if they like things right. but like if you ask them for it then you're you got a 50 50 chance of heartbreak sometimes more than that <laughs> so i think it's like it's like anything else you want to ask a question to get a useful answer which i think sort of comes around once again to the idea of specificity Maybe I should have titled this uh, episode something like asking specific questions because I think we ask too many general questions. And I also, may I just say this about specificity? Please. Which is there's so much advice out there about or like thoughts that people have about. I remember when I worked in the theater, I can play any role and I can do anything. And I'm, you know, and I actually am a huge believer in specializing. I have been horribly lopsided from a very young age. You know, when I was playing to college and everything was about being well-rounded, well-rounded. Oh, I can do calculus and I can write a poem and, you know, I love this and that. And I, I and that's like you're well-rounded, right? You can sort of do everything. But I, I am terribly lopsided. I'm not good at math and I don't know. You actually are math. good at math. See, this is something that you persist in mm -hmm. saying. So you may mother. not love math, yes. but you happen to be good at it. Well, maybe I should put it this way. Math does not come easily to me and I struggle with math. Uh, you know, but, this yeah. going back to your, I'm also not days. good at athletics and I want her even try to pretend that that's not true. See, well, what is being good at it? I mean, are you, do you play in the NBA? No, but most I people do actually, I didn't want to tell you, I didn't want to tell you surprise. Uh, it reminds me of when I used to come to auditions you were holding mm -hmm. and people would say, I can do I can do this. Yeah. It was humorous to me that that they would think that somehow I I can be an ingenue. I'm 800 years old or or you know, I mean, if you're looking for something particular, I don't know why people would think that it's good to get a role where you're going to have to twist yourself into a pretzel. Well, I also don't know why. I mean, I think like we are getting towards it more and more, but I think you shouldn't like embrace your weirdness, embrace who you are, like go towards those things that make you weird, go towards those things that make you different and special. I mean, most people don't have something that's different and special about them or they're afraid of it. And so they don't push it. If you do like go, 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 right. You have something inside you. I remember my first date with Steve, one of the things that I said to him uh, is he was sort of hemming and hawing around some stuff. And I was like, dude, you know, let your free flag fly. Like I'm too old 
to go on a date and like have to have 12 dates to figure out the truth. Like just give me all the, the weird stuff about you now. And then I get to pick whether or not this is worth going, you know, towards. Did he? Or did he, did he? No, he did. He did. He told me like, he was like, I really like TV. And I was like, okay, I don't like TV. And he was like, no, like I really like TV. And now I totally get that. Like he really likes TV. Uh, and he was, you know, he talked about how like he likes to play this game, Magic the Gathering, which I had actually heard of. And he thought it was like some big weird thing. And like some kids I knew in college played. So I was like, okay. I mean, it's not like he's telling me he's likes to, you know, torture children and murder puppies. He was like, I like to play this game. Whoa, so weird. Anyway, so apparently it didn't scare me, but it must have scared some other people. And I think that's okay, right? We all, I always say this about my artwork. You might like it, you might hate it, but you probably don't feel neutral about it. And that's fine with me. Like I, I think the worst thing in the world is to live a beige life. Many people are happy with a beige life. If HGTV is any any proof of what people like, but I just can't live in that beige world. And I don't want to be that. I would much rather be, uh, I would much rather be hated or loved, but never sort of ignored. That's not the space I want to be in. I hate that. Does that make sense? Yes. And actually I just went through a little spate, a two day spate of watching a lot of, uh, love it or list it. Mm-hmm on HGTV mm -hmm. and I just finally realized that everything was about taking down the wall between the living room, the dining room and the kitchen. And it was getting yeah. really boring. big space. Yeah. And a million different houses. And you know, the walls are coming back. I've read it. This is so off. We are so far off topic now, but let's keep going. So I read all these articles recently about people who hate open concept. I think the pandemic has done it to a lot of people. I think, you know, like being on top of each nowhere other, to hide. Zoom calls, like you can't get out. Like there's nowhere to hide the mess, the whole thing. A ton of people who just want kitchens with doors so that they don't have to be on display while they're cooking and they can shut the mess away and like all that stuff. And I do think that it, that walls down is really changes the feeling of a space and it definitely is great for like filming and stuff, but it's not always the greatest for, for living. But that's that old thing too about like make a life that feels good from the inside instead of looks good from the outside, which I also think is just an important central idea, especially nowadays, right? To really hold go on back to. to your art. If it yeah. feels right to you. It's right. Exactly. Exactly. No one can tell you if your art is done, if your art is good or bad. I mean, they can tell you, but like the only person you really have to listen to or really should listen to is yourself. And that's why it's so important to cultivate your own voice, to get to know yourself, to ask yourself questions, specific questions about why you like things, why you don't like things why you know so that's uh, something you can do in you. a museum it's very yes. a very useful thing to go to a room and talk to yourself about why certain things appeal to you and certain other things don't yeah if you can ask yourself questions then i mean this is the whole theory behind boot camp level two steal like an artist which is if you understand how to ask questions if you understand how to investigate then matisse can be your teacher even though he's dead and he's not talking directly to you you know, then and it might have been in French, which would have been a problem. <laughs> it been for in you. French, which would be very awkward for me. Uh, you know, and 
if you can ask questions, if you know how to ask specific questions, then you can always be successful. And I really believe too, that if you know how to ask specific questions, you don't run out of inspiration. Because so I was recently talking to Carolyn Doobie on an interview that we did for um, the Artful Holiday class. And she was talking about um, how she had been on vacation and she had seen these. Is it man of war jellyfish? Am I getting this right? Yeah. Okay. Man of war, man of war jellyfish. And she was like, it inspired me. And she's like, I don't know how I'm going to use it, but it's just sort of in my brain. And I was like, that is how you don't ever run out of inspiration, which is like, you see something, you're kind of mulling it over. Can you ask yourself some specific questions about it? You know, what excited me? What interested me? She was, she was talking about the color, the, you know, yeah, and the it, it dangly thing, exactly. The, the flowing, the motion. danger. Yeah. But it could be different on any given right. day. And right. I think that like one of the reasons I'm a huge devotee of the studio notebook and I'm pointing down because my studio notebook is sitting right in front of us in the studio, but I, it's filled with like notes and ideas and terrible thoughts and all sorts of stuff. But it's because it's like a dumping ground for thinking about an idea. So I took a class recently and she asked us to answer the same five questions every day for like two weeks leading up to class and they were very basic things like what are you wearing what um shape is interesting to you today like what's your what color would you describe your mood as like these kind of you know basic feelings but the thing is if you look at two weeks worth of that data it's actually kind of becomes an interesting idea of like where your brain is and how things evolve and you know all that kind of stuff and and I think that that's one of the reasons that it can be really useful to have a student notebook because by asking yourself those simple specific questions I now can see like most days I am I am not a triangle I am not a square I'm not anything with hard edges I'm, I'm something circular some days I'm a blob some days I'm a circle some days I describe myself as an ellipse sometimes I describe myself as a rubber band but it's always something it's round. Well, that's fascinating to me. And I think you see it in my artwork actually as well, you know, and then even like the, what am I wearing? I tend to wear a uniform, a very boring uniform, you know, of clothes and what, but the thing that was consistent every time is every time I wrote down what I was wearing, I was also wearing like slippers and my apron. And I started to think about that. And I was like, that is a lot for me about like the slippers are comfort right? And I'm doing a lot of standing and I like to have them and they're fuzzy and they're warm. And you have a shoes off house. And I have a shoes off house. I'm an Asian household. And then I, uh, and I'm wearing my apron because that's the thing that I wear every day to protect my clothes and to like signify to myself that like I'm in the studio, I'm here to work. Put on my apron first thing in the morning, take it off last thing, you know, at the end of the day. And I was like, so I actually have a uniform. It's less important to me sort of what I'm wearing than the fact that I have a uniform. And it sort of cemented the idea for me. It sounds so stupid. I had to write this down for two weeks to realize this. But it's like it cemented for the idea for me that, like, this is my place of work as much as anything. And that I actually had this idea then come in, which is, like, what if I wanted to do art for myself that wasn't work? Would changing my apron or going barefoot instead of having my slippers, like, could that actually change what I'm doing up here one the way, way I see this space? Out. I know, there's only one way to find out. And so I, I think, like, there are a lot of ways that even asking simple questions, but sort of over and over and over again, can generate new inspiration and new ideas. If you came every day to a piece of writing 
or a piece of art, whatever you're working, and you asked yourself the same series of questions, you'd probably have different answers. Because That's you're interesting in different about the clothes, because in the pandemic, mm-hmm. I, and I don't think I'm alone, was wearing this, you know, rotating the same few items all yeah. the time. And then last night, for the first time in two and a half years, I had dinner outside at a restaurant, five ladies, five friends. And so I went through my closet and found all these clothes that I had never worn. I had them there, but I'd never worn because I was so sick of what I was and had been wearing that I needed something new. And then I went to this dinner and one woman had was carrying a purse that she had never carried that she got out of her closet. And then somebody else was wearing something else that she had not worn and got out of her closet because there was just like this desperation to to have something new to present yourself and to feel differently about yourself. And I think that really it, your clothing can become a trap too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can understand everybody, including me wants to wear sweatpants because they're comfortable mm-hmm. and I will never wear high heels again, but, th- but there is a, a, a sort of wish to try on different costuming and, see yourself differently so i ordered a dress in the mail and i put it on and i said to my son what do you think and he said are you a queen mommy oh god and i don't care what that dress looks like in real life because now i am a queen when i wear that dress and i just feel like there is something magical right about what you put on it does change how you feel. And it, it even like one of the reasons I always argue to students that they should wear aprons or clothes they don't care about in the studio is because I think you're freer with what you do when you're less concerned about it. Yeah. One, It's the same idea as like one of the reasons that I think it's really hard to do live artwork, to do a demo in a class, to do live stream videos is because there's performance in it. And I create differently when there isn't performance. Ah. Even if I just put up the video camera for a lesson, I get performance anxiety, even though I know I can edit it and no one's actually watching live. But there, it's a very weird and interesting thing, right? And when you start to mix, which I think we have social media and all, but I mean, even Jackson Pollock was doing performance art, please, right? I mean, there's videos of him doing it and like the the method that he used was part of the art and the, the half the article in Life Magazine was pictures of him like making it as much as the finished work. So, I mean, it's not that that's anything new, but there is something, uh, when you make something just for yourself, as opposed to when you're sort of bringing it out to the world. I don't even know how we got here. We go down a winding road, don't we? It's a conversation. <laughs> it's not a lecture. It's true. You know, this is actually, so I listened to a podcast recently and maybe some other people listen to it. It's, um, uh, I'm now going to get the name of it wrong. Andy J. Pizza is the host. Not his real name, obviously, but it's the Create Creative Pep Talk, Creative Pep Talk podcast. And one of the things he was talking about is the things that he thinks make a good podcast. That that's one of the questions, one of the specific questions he asked himself to become a better podcaster was what are the things that he thinks make a good podcast? Okay. 
What are they? Well, he went through a couple of them, but in that moment, one of the things he said that I also realized is what makes a good podcast for him is not a good podcast for me necessarily. And I think that's important too. Well, you right? may have a different audience in mind than he has. Right. Or I and it may be this, it's also like me as a listener versus me as a creator right. can right. be different as right. well. But so one of the things he was saying that I found really interesting is he really likes messy podcasts, meaning like they're not scripted, they're not like you know, sort of well thought out is a terrible way of putting it, but they're more sort of like in the moment, right? And I find that I do enjoy a lot of those, but my very favorites are all ones that are really pretty strongly. Like I listen to a lot of like well-researched, more newsy kind of podcasts that are very um, on point. I listen to a lot of history podcasts that have clearly been well-researched and they, you know, practically have footnotes. And I was like, that's so interesting that I can have, I have different tastes even with my own listening and creating. And he has very different tastes than I do and what he likes to listen to. And that, that's fine. You know, that's another to question to ask yourself about your art. Now we'll go back to my writing. Mm -hmm. I should ask, who is the audience for this? And you should ask, yeah, you know, who is the audience for your art? Or mm -hmm. maybe it's going to be hanging in an art exhibition as opposed to it's going to become a card. So very different yeah. things. Well, this is actually, we talked about this. So I'm about to go vend at, um, on Wednesday at an art fair. Well, not at an art fair, at the farmer's market. Pardon me, in an art booth. It's just you and the squash just and, the, and the, <laughs> the squash and the rutabaga. Uh, but I was making all these earrings and I love them all. But I was also like, I like to wear really, like these are small earrings that I'm wearing today. I would say we're wearing comparably sized earrings for you. Those are giant earrings. And on me, those are like kind of small. And I think I was like, I need to make things that obviously I want to wear. But then I was also aware that there are people who would be like, I want to wear things like that, but slightly different. And so the question is, how much variety can you create in what you like? to also still be something you like, but isn't 100% you. So I made a bunch of what I would consider small. And some people will still think they're some big. people still think they're too big. But for me, small earrings that still have the same aesthetic I like. They still have the bold colors, the big designs, the lots of layers, like all that kind of stuff. But they're more petite. They're not like door knockers, um, which is what my, my dream earrings are always going to be shoulder touchers. And you have some. And I have some. So, I mean, I think that is the thing. Like, how much can you figure out what you love but and yet make it slightly more accessible? So, for some people, it's like sizing their art down. If you only like to make murals, can you find a way to, like, make some littler ones or make some prints or something to sell to other people? But there's so many good specific questions. And I'm thinking, why don't we wrap up this podcast by giving people maybe, like two or three specific questions that they can use to help them when they're sort of investigating their art. Okay. What do you think? Okay. Okay. Do you want to go? I think who's the audience for one. this thing I'm creating, mm -hmm. which you may not have an answer to. It may be just, I feel like throwing some paint on a piece of paper, but yeah. at least you need to ask yourself. Okay. So related to that, my question that I would have you ask is, I think it's really important to set a goal. Okay. And I think it's really important to set a goal 
every time you walk. So if you are working on a piece over six days, each of those six days is important to set a goal. So it might be different. Yeah. So, you know, today I want to just cover this canvas with color so that it's not so blank. Okay. Boom. <laughs> Good job. That's the goal. Good job. Uh, well, actually, you know what the goal, there was a goal. So my mom is holding up for those who are listening to it and not watching on YouTube. My mom is holding up a piece of paper that is painted green. So I actually had a goal for this piece of paper, which is I wanted to get brush strokes that were green in it because I was trying to copy something that, um, oh my gosh, why am I so bad with names? I need to You're sleep tired. more. I yeah. need to sleep more. You have a baby. Um, I was trying, there was an artist who I was trying to do something like, and he uses a lot of collage paper that's painted, but it's single color. And what you see in his work is these kind of beautiful brush strokes. So I was trying to figure out how much to dilute the paint to get the brush strokes that I wanted. So actually this ugly, stupid piece of collage paper did actually have a goal. And I think that goals are important. And I do, by the way, have both a video and a blog post if you're interested about um, some ideas for how to set goals. They're called smarter goals. Um, but the idea is if you can set a goal, then you can achieve it. If you don't set a goal, then you sort of don't ever know if you've achieved it. So I always want to leave the studio with a sense of satisfaction or a sense of purpose. Like, well, I didn't hit my goal, but tomorrow I will. Or, hey, yay, me, I did that. Tomorrow I'll come back and figure out what the next goal is. I think if you go in goalless, then you kind of are just always kind of like ugh, floating and never, ever moored in either success or intention. Well, and you may not know if you like it or not. Yeah. Cause you don't know what your goal was. So there you go. So yours is who's the audience. Mine's it. Mine is what's your goal. Do you have another? I think you could ask yourself, uh, to make sure to break it down enough. This goes with being able to answer the question. What, so that you're not coming in with, I want to make something that's so magnificent that it will, hang in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's too big. Mm -hmm. But I think that you need to break it down so you're very, very uh, capable of achieving it because otherwise you're always going to be dissatisfied. Yeah, I think that's about goal setting. And that is part of the smarter goals is I think the A in the smarter is achievable, meaning it has to be something that is really doable that you can check off that you really can do. And that's so key. And I think maybe um, what I would say is that I think a question you can ask yourself when you're in the studio and you're or in your kitchen or wherever you are making and you're trying to figure something out is why am I attached to this idea? Because we all get attached to ideas, okay. right? And actually, let me go back to mm -hmm. mine for a minute. One of the problems with wanting to, you know, do something so magnificent that it's going to hang in the Metro Museum of Art is then you're achieving that goal is dependent on other people. Yes. Which is not a smart way to do it because you have to depend on yourself. Yeah, that's the old thing about you can like, the only thing you control is your reaction to other people. 
So they can do whatever they're going to do. And then you get to control your reaction. So if you really want to be in control, you need to have a goal that is achievable within yourself and not from some sort of outside source of validation. Um, okay. So there's Which, the problem with TikTok and all those things. Cause your idea of success with those is how do other people, you know, how many other people yeah. are watching me? Yeah. Well, we hope ones of you are enjoying this podcast. We're doing it for you. We're doing it just for you. Okay. So what I was going to say is um, there's a couple good concrete takeaways there for you, which I hope you enjoy. Um, you and I have like twin body language right now, mom. Do we? It must, it must mean we are in agreement. We, it must mean that we're in agreement. Sharing an armrest. Okay, so we will. Oh, there was a problem. <laughs> okay, so we'll see you uh, in two weeks. And I'm just going to go through the wrap up here. Um, I hope you will check out Design Bootcamp and all my other online classes. Um, you can find me at juliebalzer.com um, or on Instagram as Balzer Designs. I'm also on YouTube and Facebook with the same handle. Um, if you'd like to take a class with me or sign up for private coaching, I'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to help the show, you can leave a review. You can mention us on social media. You can tell all your friends because all of those things help other people find the show. So thanks so much for listening and subscribing. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast.